Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is that scientists are studying bacteria's ability to transport specific toxins into your cells using a coiled amino acid chain that's actually spring-loaded, mechanically spring-loaded. When the bacteria gets ready to release toxin, the spring uncoils, kind of like the way a snake launches when it's going to spit some venom. The energy released from that amino acid chain transports the toxic chemicals through the cell membrane. That's kind of cool, and we had no idea that there was a physical component to toxin delivery, but that's how sneaky those little bastards are when they get into your body when they shouldn't. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio, and I'm Dave Asprey. Today's guest is Jeffrey Bland, a PhD and the founder and president of the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute. He's also CEO of Kindex Therapeutics, both based in Seattle, Washington, And the reason Dr. Bland is on the show today is that he's an internationally recognized leader in nutritional medicine, and he's got about 35 years of experience in it based on biochemistry, not just looking at sort of the medical side of things, although I appreciate both. 
Dr. Bland, or Jeffrey as I'll call you on the show, welcome. Dave, thanks so much. What a pleasure to be with you and your listeners. It's kind of unusual to have someone on who studied clinical biochemistry and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. So there are a lot of people who do nutrition and maybe exercise and things like that from that side of the world. But you've got like a deep chemistry background. What brought you from chemistry over into biochemistry and then nutrition? Yeah, that's a really a great question. And actually, what happened to me probably is not unlike many people that end up in, in this field of, of uh, asking questions about how we get sick, how we prevent being sick, and how we maximize our opportunity to, to be healthy throughout the course of our uh, biological life span. And what happened to me was uh, in medical school, I was uh, continually asking the question to my professors why people got these illnesses, be it heart disease, diabetes, cancer, arthritis, uh, digestive disorders, dementia, whatever it might be. And the uh, the answer that was basically given, because as, as probably everyone knows, medical school is basically very rote and it's very much uh, focused on memorization and recitation. And uh, the, the answer I got was, well, you know, you'll have a lifetime as a professional to ask those questions, but uh, right now you need to just to stick to the, the script and uh, you need to just uh, memorize these uh, these responses and on demand recite them correctly. And uh, I was a pretty impatient student and uh, that didn't really <laughs> fit my personality archetype too well. And so I kept asking these questions and um, and finally my advisor in medical school, my going in my third year said, you know, it might be wise for you to consider uh, uh, taking a PhD while you're doing this because PhDs are kind of like uh, credited and, and uh, stimulated and, and actually reinforced to ask questions. That's what it's all about. And and maybe that will get rid of this energy you've got and you can then focus on the right stuff over here on medicine. So I, I moved over, got a PhD advisor in uh, neurophysiology and, and neurobiochemistry and uh, started working on tetrodotoxin, which is uh, the pufferfish toxin. Yeah. And the reason I, I was working on that was uh, that it had a very, very interesting mechanism of action in uh, blocking certain kind of ion channels in the nerves. And you could really start examining certain neurological functions at the biochemical and cellular level in ways that you could not do with other drugs. And so um, I, I basically became a tetrodotoxin a pufferfish uh, expert over the course of the next few years, got my PhD, and decided that you know this was really an area I wanted to uh, to, fo to focus on is understanding the mechanism at the, at the cellular tissue and organ level as to how uh, how we get sick. And uh, my first uh, graduate student uh, after I got a, a faculty appointment as a as an academic was a guy who came in and he's just retired actually as the as the past head of the Department of Internal Medicine at John Hopkins Medical School. That shows you how long ago it was. But at the time he was a medical student, and he said to me, he said, Jeff, um, I'd really like to study vitamin E. Well, I, I knew nothing about vitamin E at all. This was 1970. Uh, I knew nothing really about vitamin E, but it sounded very interesting. He was a very ambitious student, so we collaborated. And we were very lucky. We, uh, we got some very uh, remarkable uh, discoveries made about the mechanism of action of vitamin E. And uh, uh, one day I was in the store with my young sons at the time in the grocery store. I think it was a Saturday. I was doing some shopping, um, uh, bailing my wife out. And uh, I happened to look up at the uh, checkout stand that has all the tabloid magazines in there was a National Enquirer, and um, it, the headlines of it was something like uh, academic or professor finds secret to aging. <laughs> and, and I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. So I, I picked it up and, uh, and pulled out the, a newsstand, and lo and behold, here's my picture on the cover. It was me that they were talking wow. about. Wow. 
from our vitamin E work. And, and uh, my claim to fame is that I was right next on the, on the cover of uh, National Enquirer, that, that issue, uh, to Elizabeth Taylor, who was also talking about aging, but from a slightly different perspective. But uh, that, that kind of changed my career from that point on. Uh, I, I, from there, then got uh, quite a bit of uh, notoriety for talking about the mechanisms of free radical aging, oxidants and antioxidants. I was one of the first people to really write review papers on antioxidants and oxidants. Um, I was funded very heavily for some of the research that we did uh, by uh, companies that um, made vitamin E. At that time, it was Hinkle and, and Eastman Kodak, and and I uh, we published oh, probably over 50 papers in the science scientific literature, wrote several books, and uh, it kind of launched my career as a nutritional biochemist and clinical biochemist. It was never what I intended, but it just uh, became such an exciting opportunity, and from that, uh, the last 35 years goes by very, very quickly. Does it make you mad if people say you discovered or invented vitamin E? Not that you could invent something that's always existed, but... Well, I, I think it is interesting, first of all, when people um, introduce me as a nutritionist, because I always wonder who they're uh, referring to. I have to remind <laughs> myself whether they're, they're talking about, about me. And secondly, uh, about the, um, the early days of vitamin E, 1970 was, uh, was about 30 years after vitamin E had actually been discovered by a, a woman, Dr. Harrell, at the University of California at Berkeley who actually was working on vegetable oils and found that if you completely stripped vegetable oils uh, from what was later to be called tocopherol, which means to give birth in Greek, uh, that's vitamin E, that the uh, rats would not be able to have any live births. And so that's why they called it tocopherol, to give birth, because it it uh, prevented, uh, rats don't have uh, miscarriages, they resorb their fetuses. So it caused it causes a fetal resorption in the absence of proper vitamin E in their diet. And, and actually that became later the, the bioassay for testing the vitamin E content of oils was to give it to rats and see how effective it was in preventing um, fetuses from being resorbed. And it and that became the uh, one of the standards for what's called the Biological International Unit Standard of Potency for vitamin E. So it was really... Um, my work that uh, kind of opened up the mechanistic uh, understanding of how this uh, all operates at the cellular level uh, by looking at actually the role that vitamin E has in cellular membranes and protecting against lipid peroxidation and all sorts of other things probably more detailed than you want me to get into but um, that became my my kind of claim to fame early on in the 70s. So Jeff you are I'd say considered one of the fathers of functional medicine. Uh, it's actually really an honor to even get to interview you because you've spent your entire career in this and I, I'm familiar with your work because of the work I've done with the Silicon Valley Health Institute, which is a, itself a 20-year-old now anti-aging research group in Palo Alto, not super well known, but for 20 years we've had experts come and speak and your work has been referenced. Functional medicine is kind of a new trendy term, orthomolecular medicine, integrative physician, holistic physician, nutritionist, nutritional. What is your favorite word for that stuff you do? <laughs> well, thank you. That's that's a really great question. Um, you used a word there, orthomolecular, and that, that has a special place in my heart because that was a term coined by Linus Pauling, two-time yeah. Nobel Prize winning laureate from Palo Alto, uh, originally from Caltech. 
and I had the privilege of, um, of really having him as my boss for two years in uh, 1981 and 82. I was on sabbatical and was a research lab director on sabbatical at the Pauling Institute of uh, Science and Medicine. And uh, orthomolecular really was a term that he uh, coined in a, a landmark article he published in Science Magazine in 1968, in which he talked about orthomolecular psychiatry, the use of specific natural substances uh, that are found in the body to normalize uh, brain and neuronal function. Of course, vitamin C is one that he got very, uh, very from, uh, famous for, but he really talked about the whole milieu of these natural substances in the body, which if they're in balance can lead to dysmetabolism and create what we call disease. And his whole concept was normalize the natural materials in the body by using natural substances and the body will run smoothly. That, that's kind of was the orthomolecular concept. And the uh, Society of Orthomolecular Medicine was born out of those uh, that period of time in the um, in the in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, a very uh, famous uh, psychiatrist uh, uh, in um, in Berkeley and, and in uh, San Francisco uh, really uh, formed this group called the or the Molecular Medical Association, and uh, I met with them many many times. And uh, one of their key uh, founding members, along with Dr. Pauling, was Dr. Linus. Uh, was, excuse me, was Dr. Um, Abram Hoffer, a psychiatrist in Victoria, which uh, you know very well. And I had the privilege of spending a lot of time with Abram Hoffer and, and just think the world of him and his work and, and the, what he talked about uh, with niacin and, and mental illness and pyridoxine, vitamin B6. And so uh, that kind of gave rise to this whole molecular approach to nutrition that uh, uh, all fit together in a very, very interesting kind of sidebar to what is considered kind of fruits, nuts, and berries in nutrition. So in uh, 1989, I got together, uh, actually uh, sponsored uh, a meeting in Victoria. Now I'm thinking about it, it's kind of interesting in Victoria, British Columbia. Yeah, right where I live. <laughs> I, I know, which I, it's a small world because that's where Abram Hoffer was living yeah. as well. So I brought in uh, 40 um, thought leaders that I had been working with for many years that were from different fields to just sit down with a whiteboard and ask the what if question. What, what if we could form the best medical uh, technology available, what would it look like? Let's get away from the concerns of reimbursement, peer reinforcement, all the pedigrees and pedagogy. Let's just talk from a theoretical point of view as what would the best medical world look like if we could divine it to be so. And out of those two years we met in, in 89 and 90 in Victoria, uh, came out uh, this, this concept of a systems biology approach to, to healthcare. Rather than organ specific, naming and blaming and thinking we know everything because we can name a disease, it was really asking where do these things come from, what's the mechanism that leads to a specific disorder in an individual so we treat the cause rather than the effect. And um, as I was trying to think of a word, because I didn't think uh, all the words that were available like orthomolecular or unconventional or um, holistic or alternative or uh, complementary, uh, these all had baggage associated with them and, and it would already create uh, distance among people if you just used the word. So I was trying to think of something that everyone could rally around as, as a common word. Um, so I asked, okay, let's ask me the, let's ask the counterpoint. Uh, what would be a kind of medicine that no one would, no matter what their discipline is or their pedigree, would want to practice? And I said, well, no one would be want to stand up and be called a dysfunctional practitioner. <laughs> so I said, okay, then that means everyone would want to be a functional practitioner. So I, I use a double entendre of the word functional 
because functional not only implies you're doing something functionally good, hopefully, but it also implies something that precedes the onset of pathology, which is dysfunction in the body. So I, I, I chose to um, resurrect this word because it had been kind of a pejorative word in medicine before that. It had been considered psychosomatic medicine or, or geriatric medicine, rehabilitative medicine. But as I'm reading the literature, I saw that more and more functional is being used in terms of functional cardiology, functional endocrinology, functional radiology, looking at the, the, the effects of early stage uh, changes in the body's function that later stage gave disease. So I said, let's call it the Institute for Functional Medicine and we will move this ahead and see how it goes. And it's been very, very interesting uh, since that 89-90 um, uh, period, we founded the Institute for Functional Medicine in 91. In December of 2013, we had our 100,000th doctor go through one of our courses. Uh, we now have the medical textbook of functional medicine. It's in 17 medical schools. Uh, we just certified the first uh, 300 uh, fellows of the uh, Institute for Functional Medicine that have uh, done over 1,000 uh, postgraduate hours of study and had to take a very rigorous exam to be certified. So I think this thing now has got a little bit of traction. Uh, it's, it's kind of on the knee of the hockey stick and uh, it's, it's a movement that has a worldwide um, uh, following. So I, I'm very excited about where it's going. Well, you've, you've certainly done the world a great service with that. I remember back in 1996, I went to the Palo Alto Medical Foundation and something was wrong. It, it turns out I actually had Lyme disease and I, I was experiencing all kinds of problems. And I also had excessive work stress and I was eating the wrong stuff and overexercising. And, uh, you know, basically, if you could mess it up, I was you know reading it in a magazine kind of and doing it right. And I was more advanced than that, but I, it was really clearly unwell. I didn't know what to call a functional medicine doctor then because they didn't really have them. So I went to my normal doctor and I said, you know, something's wrong, but vitamin C seems to make it right. And at least it helps. And he said, stop, vitamin C will kill you. <laughs> and, and I said, what about Linus Pauling? Okay, this is in Palo Alto, right? And, and I looked at it and, and I said, you don't know who Linus Pauling is. And he said, no. And he said, he said, you know, Nobel Prize, took 90 grams of vitamin C for 20 years. And he said, and by the way, you're fired. And I walked out, <laughs> I walked out of his office and I didn't see another doctor for several years. I did the work myself. That's actually part of the story of how I became a biohacker. I'm like, look, I, I own my biology. I'm going to have to manage it. Uh, largely using techniques out of computer hacking, which is my background. There's a lot of techies who kind of cross over into health. So, number one, thanks, because now when a client calls, I can say, you want a functional medicine doctor or maybe an anti-aging doctor. There's still some of those out there and there's so much crossover, um, but that's really cool. Now, how should people talk to their doctor when they go in and they're like, actually, I'm not interested in getting a shot or whatever. I would like to stay younger, stronger. I'd like to be more resilient and, you know, not get sick this year, but I don't want a flu shot. Like what, what's the speech you should give to a doctor who's not a functional medicine doctor in order to at least get them on your side? Well, I first think uh, the word that you chose there is, is really a key word and that's resilience. Uh, the more that we study how organisms, not just humans, but all animals, uh, survive against the uh, the threat of entropy. You know, entropy is this uh, universal law of thermodynamics that says everything goes to hell in a handbasket free of charge. You don't need to do anything. And so you, you have to work up against entropy to keep organize, organize, organized structure uh, intact. And so the way that you do that is you improve resiliency. And you know, James Fries at Stanford was really the first guy 
to seriously talk uh, about resiliency in kind of the medical academe. And uh, he, he talked in this article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1980 called Aging Natural Death and the Compression of Morbidity. Uh, he talked about the nature of how animals can improve resiliency on the basis of uh, how they um, operate in the world. And he, he contrasted zoo animals to animals in the wild, showing that animals that were in zoos actually had a, a shorter longevity than, than animals that were not killed in, as an animal of prey, but could live out the limits of their biological uh, life expectancy in the wild, that in the wild they actually live longer. And so you got into how do you maximize the environment in order to uh, produce the, the most healthy resilience. And, and that was uh, really I think uh, the foundation of how we uh, train the docs uh, that are part of the functional medicine system is to think about uh, the systems, and that's uh, the seven core phys physiological processes that really relate to the network of resilience that people have, the ability to resist infection, the ability to resist injury, the ability to repair, to reproduce, to have movement, to generate energy and product, uh, direct energy into a functional state rather than just heat loss to the universe. All of those things are really a, a measure of biologic efficiency, which is a measurement uh, indirectly of biological age, which is an indirect measurement of how healthy you are. Uh, if your biological age is high relative to your chronological age, you're generally not very healthy, your resilience is very low, and you're very inefficient in the uh, in the ability to take energy and process it into directed forms of, of success. So when we uh, kind of talk about how we um, address a patient uh, and to, so they can be uh, interrogating docs in the right way to get the right answers, the first question that I believe is very important, uh, if you're not trying to get a doc that's just uh, driving for the diagnosis to give you a, the pill or surgery for that particular disease, but you really want to know how do I make this organism called me work as effectively as possible for as many years, compress illness in but the last few seconds of my life and then move on at some terminal age after 100 to the next level of my challenge, of my energy. If, you, if that's your objective, then the question I think as a patient you need to ask the doc is, are they interested in your lifestyle? Are they interested in what you eat, how you think, where you live, what you breathe, what you drink, uh, your social interactions? Are they are they really doing more than just paying lip service in a three-minute conversation about do you smoke and you know are you overweight? But they're really going to, into the narrative, which is your story. Every patient, every person knows their life story better than a doctor will ever know it. There's no doctor except the doctor's doctor themselves that's going to know a patient's life story as well as the patient. The difficulty is we um, we marginalize the value of that story often in medicine. We don't allow the patient to tell their story. We don't allow the person to really give the color that they understand, this intuitive knowledge about what makes them feel good and how they do best in the world. And we uh, just drive for a uh, what I call the... Uh, uh, medical teleology, which is the, the diagnosis. We, we're, we're, we're trying to get uh, a taxonomic understanding of a ind complex individual with one word, oh, you're a diabetic. And once they're a diabetic, they're a diabetic for the rest of their life in the minds of that doctor. They're not James Smith or uh, Jill Jones that has a complex life uh, with a complex genealogy. They're just the diabetic patient 47. So I think that the question that a patient should or a person should be asking their doc is, how interested are you in 
hearing my narrative and hearing about the life that I live, how I live it, what my family history is, my where I think my gen genetic strengths and weaknesses lie, because even those of us that don't have gene tests have some understanding of, of things that uh, we're, we're resistant to or things that we're sensitive to. And uh, But it takes a while to get that story out and to listen as a conscious listener. And, and this is what uh, docs of old did. If you read um, uh, some of the original medical literature, you'll find that uh, uh, the docs didn't have a whole lot in their, their, their tool bag of therapeutic benefit. <laughs> but what they did have is really good listening ability and really good uh, uh, kind of, uh, I guess you call it synthetic ability to put together information and create uh, an archetype of what that patient they're talking to is really all about and how to, to manage with some simple tools their complex symptoms. And that is a, a very, very powerful skill. And you can learn within five minutes as a patient, whether your doc has got that skill or not, by asking that question. If they say, no, I'm not that interested, or they just give it lip service and blow it off, then you, you know you're going to have a doc that's really focused most on your disease. One of the things I learned over the course of a decade running an anti-aging education group is that oftentimes, especially among people who are a little sick or who are really trying to figure out what's been going on with me, like they're on a path because something always hurts or they feel tired or whatever it is and they didn't get what they wanted in their first two things, they get a little bit hostile towards their physician. And it's one of the worst things you can do when you go into an appointment and you sort of have a distrustful sort of perspective there. At the same time, if you're just wholly trusting, you're going to walk out of there like sticking with needles and a bunch of pills, and you might not like that outcome either. So the ability to receive the feedback and judge it, but not necessarily argue every point seems to be a pretty good skill to navigate the company or the, the physician that your insurance company will actually cover in order to get the things you want, whether it's the right form of thyroid medication or a little bit of bioidentical testosterone, which by the way, you can get from a Western doctor who's not a functional medicine doctor if you know what to say. That's exactly right. And it actually has become easier under the Affordable Health Care Act. Uh, I think a lot of people are very uh, antagonistic to, um, to the, this new health care law, feeling that it's just really changed the whole playing field and made it confusing. I, I think we have to look at it from a slightly different perspective. It actually is opening up uh, the opportunity for disruptive innovation and disruptive technology. It's, it's creating the headspace that we need to actually ask the right kind of questions. Before, that, you couldn't even ask the questions because they were already nullified and before you even asked them. Uh, the system was so regimented in, in the multi-headed hydra, multi-headed hydra that we call the healthcare um, kind of industrial complex was really not at all um, I guess even susceptible or sensitive or, or uh, compassionate about uh, asking different questions concerning uh, your uh, issues in healthcare. So this, the Affordable Healthcare Act, to me, has opened up the chance, and it is actually reimbursing for prevention, uh, although they're fairly primitive uh, services at this point. At least we have some headspace. At least we have some room. We we got our foot in the door. There's a, a glimmer of light coming through. Uh, the the, um, the law of the land that we're operating under now we know is going to change over the next few years. It will broaden. It will take into account this new quantified human movement. It will uh, encourage much more understanding using wearable devices. It will uh, it will use biometrics. It will uh, it will help personalize medicine so that it's not medicine for the average. It's medicine for the individual. These are all things that are going to happen. But in order for that to happen, we had to have a revolution, and that is the Affordable Health Care Act. It is going to create that disruption that will allow this kind of voice and language to occur. So my thought is that when people 
are very negative and saying, oh, nothing ever changes, it's, uh, life just gets more complicated, regulations just get more confusing. They need to look somewhat at the other side saying, the only way we're going to create a change in this very complex system, which makes the military industrial complex look childlike in comparison, is to, um, is to have a disruptive revolution, uh, an evolution, an evolving evolution. And that's really what is occurring right now in healthcare. And I think that it's driven by groups like yours. I mean, quite honestly, um, these are uh, resist authority, uh, take charge of their health. Uh, this is my body, I own it, and I want the information I'm gonna get what I need type of uh, vigilance, which will create the space for many others that will follow. It, it's, it's gotta feel pretty good. You wrote a book called The Disease Delusion, and you've outlined all sorts of physiological processes here, but largely your career from a sort of Western biochemical perspective has been very uh, functional and structured, and you brought in some of the systems thinking. When you get things like 23andMe genetic data results, and you're seeing that now from more than just a couple people who had $100,000 to do it, and you're getting people who come in and say, oh, here's my heart rate all day, every day for the past X number of, of days. Does that sort of change the way you think about the practice of medicine or are, you know, what, like what, what's your, what's your take on where that's going, I guess, is the question I'm really asking there. Well, obviously I, I, I could turn that question around to you because I think you probably are more uh, informed than I am. But my thought as I'm putting my finger and my finger on the pulse of this is this is the wild card. This is the change agent. This is the currency that we need. This is the lightning. This is uh, the, the light in a box, whatever you want to call it, that is going to really move us from, um, statistical humans, which is what we studied in medical school, the 60, uh, 70 kilogram mythical statistical human to medicine of the individual, to healthcare for the individual. You know, as, as uh, Roger Williams said in 1974, when I was at a, uh, a founding meeting of the uh, American Society of Preventive Medicine, he uh, said something, and he, by the way, was the father of uh, panathenic acid and discovered a number of other important nutrients. He was the, um, uh, also the, uh, developer the concept called the genetotropic theory of disease and biochemical individuality he wrote books and articles on that in Lancet and the JAMA and uh, and, and he said um, you know nutritionists are real people statistical humans are of little interest and it, that in such a simple statement he, he captured such a tremendous body of information because we have generations of people that have been studying statistical humans uh, even studies that we do, these double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trials, as we probably know, regress to the mean. They're built around statistical averages. The outliers, who are the people on the edge of the curve, which is basically every one of us, for some principle, is an outlier. There's not a single person that for some nomogram, in some value of some analyte in their body, is not an outlier. Yet they, we, uh, we are driven into the regression of the mean, thinking everybody is somehow within two standard deviations from the mean and should be treated like everybody else. We didn't even gender specify in medicine, as you probably know, until uh, Bernadette Healy became the director of the National Institutes of Health. We had our first woman director who then mandated uh, studies to be uh, stratified for females. We didn't even have good data on women. It was all mixed together as a polyglot. So I, I think that what this is doing right now is it's, it is the transformation agent that is really producing the medicine that we need for the individual because we're not going to be able to solve the issues 
of individuals by applying a medicine for the average. Let me use a good example. I'll get off my soapbox on this, and that's statins. Statins are a really interesting example because they became so prevalent in thinking that there was actual serious consideration of putting them in the water system, like we put fluoride, uh, for for kids because kids were uh, showing such uh, increasing levels of uh, cholesterol in their blood that it was thought, okay, this could be a public health approach towards reducing cardiovascular disease because these drugs are, quote, so safe. Well, what's, what's uh, been happening, as you well know, is that over the years of their administration, the degree of adverse side effects that are occurring in patients taking statins are going up. In fact, uh, I think nearly 50% of patients that take statins have some kind of uh, low-grade adverse effects, neuromuscular effects, cramping, pain. Um, I'm not even talking about the most serious effects, uh, the uh, granulomyosis that relates to uh, complete kind of degradation of muscle fibers. But these are just very nagging symptoms and sometimes things that appear like exercise intolerance. And I've seen this in so many statin-taking individuals. And uh, so now people are saying, well, hold up, maybe they're not as safe as they, uh, we thought them to be. Now, why is that? The reason it, it uh, happens is that over the course of time, when people are exposed to foreign molecules that their body are not used to, eventually they start developing uh, antibodies to those molecules because they are foreigners. They also start um, having effects that are on secondary or tertiary levels and off-target effects that may have been very um, kind of mild in the short term, but they become cumulative over long term and they start to add up. And so you start to see things appear. This, we saw this with a drug Vioxx um, that looked like a great uh, painkiller uh, and anti-inflammatory, but over time, we started seeing people then having these uh, cardiovascular events who had specific types of genetic uniquenesses. So these, these constructs that um, we are gonna treat people with blockbuster drugs, everyone gets one class at some particular dose schedule, is just ludicrous. It's totally in opposition of what we learned over the last 25 years about pharmacogenetics and uniqueness of individuals. And therefore, I think what you've just stated, this concept that we are seeing people accumulate information, get access to data they never had. Just uh, only two weeks ago, the FDA has now, uh, no, excuse me, it was the high court, has now uh, validated that patients should have complete access to their medical records, including all their laboratory values. Now think of 15 years ago, as a patient, unless you were a medical doctor, you'd had no access to your laboratory data. You didn't need, whatever your doctor wanted to tell you was all you really got. They didn't get, give yeah. you access to that information. So now this this freedom of, of information is, um, is gonna require us all to step up and be more responsible and to be engaged in the most important thing that we own in our lives, which is our genome and our body, and do something about it. That to me is exciting. Does it bother you that I'm an unlicensed biohacker? And in that I have zero credentials for what I do, yet I, I mean, probably seven million downloads of the podcast uh, about now, and lots of millions of people see the things I write, which I link to references and all that stuff. There's an entire possibility that I could be wrong. Of course, all research has that link. Uh, but some of the things I recommend aren't necessarily mainstream. A lot of them come out of anti-aging uh, kind, of, kind of fields. But there's always been sort of a, a very high bar for medical professionals. I, I'm not one. I'm never going to be one, but I'm damn good at looking at systems and data. 
some of these people will want to give people like me access to all of their quantified self data and blood values for inflammation and lipids and whatever else and say, you know what, could you crank it through your mechanistic algorithm or just through your brain? I don't really care, but tell me where I should look for more clues. Tell me the other data I'm missing. What if the person who does that is not a medical professional? Like, is that scary to you or is that a liberating thing? Well, I think first you have to ask the question, what does credential and medical professional mean? I mean, these are words, right? <laughs> yes. These are language systems that, that tie us to certain uh, preconcept, uh, preconceptions as to what is required to be sentient or to be knowledgeable or to be authentic or to be truthful uh, or to be an authority. And um, I mean, there are many people that are credentialed that are not authorities, although they might think they are and pontificate on things that they have real no knowledge about and, and think that they really are, are giving truthful facts when their level of knowledge is so superficial you could wipe yeah. it off with a dust cloth. So I think that we have to be very cautious how we use language and what is authenticity. I mean, I go, I think, with the Malcolm Gladwell concept of what is an expert, right? It's 10,000 hours. And uh, if you spend the time to dig deep, if you're smart and you're a, a person that uh, is a seeker, and this is what I always look for when I'm hiring people, is uh, I don't look, I mean, I like to run by the resume, but the most important thing is how deeply do they search? Uh, how vigilant are they? Uh, how, how ambitious about they are to, to find truth? And uh, how, uh, how much are they willing to call themselves wrong when they can find better answers? Those are, the, uh, the, to me, the examples of, of, of authenticity as it relates to professionalism. And, um, you know, there is a certain skill set, there's a certain set of uh, kind of, uh, I guess you call it ante in any profession that you have to have to be called a professional. Yeah. I don't think you necessarily have to go to, to a formal school and sit down in a classroom and, and go through the recitation to be that. Because there are many people that go through that formation and they're never professional. So I, I, I think we have to reevaluate words in this, uh, in this, uh, this, this new age that we live. Uh, the internet age is an age of access to information that we never had before. It's democratizing information. Rather than command and control, which is a militaristic uh, top-down type of uh, information system that we've had historically, this is a democratization of the information system, which I think has huge value. But it also, like anything, has huge risk. It has to be managed in both ways. I'm looking forward to a world where I can take the sum total of my QS data, my lab data, and whatever other stuff I've got, and I can give it to three different experts who are all well-rated by a group of people with bodies like mine, let's say. And I can get all of them to crunch my data or talk to me or whatever. Like there, there's a line between crunching data and being a care provider and, and they're different things. But And I want to get an answer back from each of them, compare them, look for commonalities and go, all right. I think that's really good. And this one's an outlier. Why are they an outlier? Either they're not or they know something the other guys don't and their algorithm's better. And in my mind, this isn't the future of medicine, but this is a future of discovery of what's wrong. And medicine is what is the art of restoring the balance, restoring resilience and all. And there, the, the care provider matters. I, I work with a team of different people, different physicians who know different things. You know, I, I don't self-treat, but I certainly self-manage aggressively, I, I think it is, is fair to say. But that vision, I think because of the internet, because of the cloud is where we're going. And I hope more physicians embrace it because someone who's been through that, who's had their data looked at from at least one good algorithm like that and comes into your office is just going to be better prepared. And yeah. you'll have the data too. And then you can really team and, and you can maybe do something in the eight minutes you get with them. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you said it very beautifully. And and that actually gave was the whole rationale for me um, writing this uh, book, The Disease Delusion. I, I felt that I, I, um, 
I owed it to myself and, and hopefully to the readers as well to sit down and to kind of compile 35 years of this uh, journey that I've been on, 6 million miles and, and you know, literally thousands of, of thought leaders that I've had the fortune and privilege to talk to. I think I've, I've been a pretty good mosaic of uh, picking up these ideas from a lot of these individuals and trying to put them together into a, a system that uh, has some structure. And I just felt that it was time to really sit down and try to put that process of thinking together into a formalization that made it accessible to, um, to, to I guess, health uh, seekers. And uh, my book is certainly not a book that's uh, like a primer book for every uh, person that wants a pill for an ill, but I think it is a book that does, does describe the intellectual development of this field and gives kind of the uh, insight as to how one can harness this extraordinary technology that we have uh, seen emerge over the last uh, 20 years. It, it's a revolution comparable only to the revolution in knowledge that occurred at the turn of the last century with the uh, invention of the or the discovery of the disease, um, uh, infectious disease model, where bacteria and viruses were found to produce disease and led to this huge advance in human health that occurred in the early 20th century. And I think we're seeing the same type of uh, thing happen now as it relates to this omics revolution and where omics um, interfaces with uh, lifestyle and, and behavior patterns in the environment. That's where the next major breakthrough is going to occur. In your book, by the way, I, I recommend anyone who listens to this show regularly and, and likes to think about managing themselves, managing their their biohacking abilities, ought to take a look at your book because what you've done over 35 years really does come through because there's an incredible mishmash of information out there. And it's so complex that learning how to organize and categorize it so it's absorbable by people who haven't spent 10 or 100,000 hours doing it, it, the bar is so high. And this is something where I've struggled. I've read hundreds and hundreds of books to get to the level of knowledge that I have. But you've got seven core physiological processes that you outline, and every one of those is somewhere where you can fall off that, that wagon where either you're in a state of resilience and you feel good all the time and you can walk around kicking ass all the time, or like your day sucks and you don't know why. And I found your list to be stellar and spot on and, and you're not missing anything, and uh, I just I, I couldn't find fault with it. So would you run through the seven things that our bodies must do right for you to feel good all the time? Yeah, I think thanks. And one might ask, why is it seven? It's you know, it sounds a lot like where there's seven steps to success or something. I mean, it's just <laughs> what's with seven? Stephen Covey did it <laughs> exactly. Uh, the the reason that uh, those seven came out uh, was when we did these uh, whiteboard meetings in Victoria back in '89 and '90. Uh, we were sieving uh, the literature the best we could um, among this group of multidisciplinary experts and uh, trying to put into piles or buckets uh, where this literature kind of netted out. And uh, as we got into further discussions and we're codifying these buckets where you could take these different studies that were being published on all sorts of different diseases and, and ask what's the fundamental nexus of the uh, study about. I mean, let's not talk about what you call the disease, let's call it what they're, what they're studying. It, it turned out that they fell into one of these seven, one or more of these seven piles, which we later called the core physiological processes. Now, I'm not saying that um, these are etched in stone and these came down on tabloids. All I'm saying is that they appeared to cover the waterfront to differentiate the different functions that a human being has that control their phenotype. The phenotype is how we look, act, feel, and, and, um, and perform over the course of living. And so they, uh, the seven include things like uh, digestion, elimination, 
which is one. And we framed that, uh, what we would often call the gastrointestinal system, in a, in a different, we would call it a more modern way, because we recognize that 50% of the body's immune system is clustered around the intestines. And it wasn't just for cosmetic reasons. It wasn't that the universal uh, designer said, I don't have any place to put the, uh, uh, the immune system, so I'll just stick it on the intestines. They're stuck there because if you think of it in the course of living, we eat about 20 tons on average of foreign molecules, unless we're a cannibal. And our, our body has to uh, understand how to translate those foreign molecules into friendly messages to our body. So the immune system that's uh, clustered around our intestines really is the uh, translator of our foreign molecules in our food into favorable messages for our body. Now that can also go the other way because it can uh, be the translator of foreign molecules in our food into an alarm message in our body, which then produces inflammation. That's why gluten can produce dementia. Uh, the, the effect of gluten in the gut can be translated through signaling all the way up to the brains of the neuroglial cells, uh, which are, you know, the the, um, the brain's immune system is, is clustered there. So we, we recognize that the uh, gastrointestinal or eliminate, digestive elimination system is much more than just a, a digestive conduit like a piece of plumbing. It's an active uh, uh, sampler of our universe and sampling the outside and translating it to the inside. So that's how we approached uh, that. Uh, the next one would be our body's detoxification system. And I find it very interesting how many people in medicine will still somehow resist this concept of detoxification. <laughs> yes. I, I, I just don't understand why this is because we know that if we didn't have this highly evolved uh, complex detoxification system that we're exposed to so many foreign substances both coming from outside and inside our bodies that we wouldn't last but a couple of years as an animal. We have to have a detoxification system. And so then the question that's been raised is, okay, we have a detoxification system, but it only works on drugs. No, it works on all sorts of things. Any molecule goes through these same cytochrome P450s and phase two conjugases and so forth. And so that is a very interesting system because it shows such genetic variation from person to person. In fact, the cytochrome P450 phase one detoxification system in our liver shows more biological variability uh, than virtually any other system in our body. In fact, from one person to another, a specific activity of a, a detoxifying enzyme may vary by a factor of 10 to the third or a thousand. So that means the, that if you expose someone to a dose of something uh, and they have a fast detoxifying system, they have no effect at all. That same dose at the same level uh, to another person who has a slow detoxifying ability may kill them. So there's this very wide variation in detoxifying ability from person to person. This has given birth in medicine the field called pharmacogenetics, in which we now recognize you can't give certain drugs to certain people based upon their genetic ability to metabolize because they just don't do well on certain drugs. So we, uh, we, we also recognize that um, diet and lifestyle plays a role in how our detoxifying system works because many of these enzymes are inducible. The genes are upregulated upon stimulation by specific nutrients, particularly okay. certain phytochemicals like cruciferous vegetables. So This is one of those easy-to-hack systems where, oh, I'm not detoxing well enough or maybe I just swim in pollutants all the time because of my job. Maybe I could help my body out a little bit there. And like you said, for some reason, this seems to be not well not well covered in modern medicine. Is there a reason that, that this is number two on your list, that it's not thought of in medicine? Well, my belief is, and I, I don't know if this is fact, but my belief, um, and we were one of the first groups, I'm very proud to say, uh, in really looking at the nutrient impact upon detoxification 
from a biochemical perspective. We published our first papers on this in the early 80s when I was at the Pauling Institute. And um, I believe that medicine resists this because they think that these detoxification systems somehow only apply to foreign molecules, meaning drugs. Oh, that's why. It's just a bias towards drugs. Okay. I, I think it really is. And, and so they will accept, uh, the, at least the more enlightened doctors will accept the fact that there are these variations in uh, pharmacogenetic detoxifying systems for drugs like SSRIs and with polymorphisms of uh, cytochrome P450-2D6, so you don't give certain drugs to those people that have that genetic variation. But where they get in, into, um, I think, more uh, confusion is that the endogenous substances that are produced, say, by our gut bacteria that are absorbed every day from the metabolism of our microbiome, uh, those things have to be detoxified by the same systems that are detoxifying drugs. So if we yes. can't detoxify drugs, then we might have problem detoxifying these other things too, which produces uh, a condition in medicine that's called hepatic encephalopathy. And the name suggests that the liver, the hepatic region, is connected to the brain encephalopathic. However, it really should be called gastrointestinal hepatic encephalopathy because the, uh, the toxins that are produced in our gut are not detoxified by the liver end up in the brain and what happens in these people in the hospitals they become uh, they hallucinate and they become psychotic and you see this in older age people often and there is treatment for that and what do they treat they treat the gut with a drug called lactulose that causes diarrhea and gets rid of the toxic drugs uh, toxic bacteria so you know when you start bringing these things up to doctors because they often don't think about all these associations I mean they're so busy just filling out forms yeah. and keeping out of medical insurance liability issues and trying to deal with patients as best they can. They don't have the time to sit down, read the literature, thoughtfully consider how all these things fit together. I mean, these are bright people. I don't want to sound dismissive at all. And they're dedicated people, but they we can only handle so much. So I think that often they don't have the, the bandwidth, the space to really think about all these other connections. And it, it's not commonly taught in school. You've got, let's see, five more on your list. You've got defense as another area of physiological process. So this is obviously the immune system. And what's kind of the short version of, of how you think about defense in, in these, these processes for staying resilient? Yeah, I think the, the defense, the, the way that we think of that is that as with any defensive system, it can be your best friend, it can be your best enemy. Uh, because if there's nothing to defend against and the defense system wants to be active it might start just attacking the things around it and that's called the innocent bystander uh, activities and that's inflammatory diseases that's autoimmune disease that's allergy that's uh, atherosclerotic uh, arterial inflammation um, that's neuropathy and so the the, the immune system gone uh, overactive uh, because it's it's trying to do battle against a, a, a feigned enemy that doesn't really exist is is a big potential problem. So then you start saying, well, how do you cool off the immune system? If if it's the god of war, Mars, it's the color red, rubor, color, and dolor, how do you, you make Mars into, into uh, uh, the goddess of love, uh, Pangea, and, uh, and, and and cool that, 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 that off so, so red goes to green? And the, and the answer is there are many ways that we can do that by uh, both removing the offender that's triggering uh, the um, 
the god of war, Mars, into being red, the immune system being overly active. And there's uh, other things that you can give that are um, agents that tend to normalize the immune system, uh, a variety of phytochemicals, ginger, uh, uh, hops-derived polyphenols, uh, various substances that will be very useful in normalizing the effect. So it's, it's finding the right balance uh, to normalize the immune system. And the next one, of course, is um, what we call cellular communication that relates to the molecules that transmit information from one place to the body another, like we call think of hormones, like uh, the, the steroid hormones are obviously the most uh, uh, widely thought of, but we can also think of prostanoids, icostanoids, we could think of leukotrienes, we could think of cytokines, we can think of all sorts of messenger molecules that are transmission agents for taking messages from one place of the body and communicating it somewhere else. Um, uh, one of the families that has been recently discovered are the, the messenger molecules coming out of our fat. When we have angry fat, we call these adipocytokines. And these uh, fat molecules can trigger problems in the heart. They can trigger problems in the brain. They can trigger problems in the pancreas, uh, causing uh, beta cells to die and losing insulin secreting ability. So how do you normalize the, uh, the messaging of your body, these hormones and these messenger molecules? And that's another major part of the, the book that we talk about. And then the next uh, is the um, cellular transport. How do you get things that you need from one place to another. Uh, for instance, you need fat to go from the liver to a cell so it can be used for energy. It's transported on the back of what are called lipoproteins. And we call these LDLs, VLDLs, HDLs, IDLs. How do you produce the right family of those transport proteins so it doesn't block up the system and uh, glob up the arteries and, and create uh, uh, coronary, vascular, coronary vascular disease? And, and the other is how do you transport glucose, which is a principal fuel. It's a form of sugar that needs to be in every cell that uh, is doing metabolism, but it needs to be in the right dose at the right level at the right time, not too much, not too little. How do you transport glucose effectively? And that leads to the concepts of insulin signaling, insulin resistance, um, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, and all those conditions. So uh, we have a whole discussion about that. Uh, another of the um, seven core physiological processes has to do with uh, structure. You know, we think of the skeleton as something that is in the anatomy lab of, of, uh, of some school in which it's dead and it's just this calcified matrix of these bones. But if we really look at the skeleton, it is an extraordinarily important active part of our body. It turns over every seven years. It uh, has a marrow which produces every white and blood, red blood cell in our body. It's a major part of our immune system. It produces hormones that regulate the communication with the gut, that communicate with our pancreas to regulate insulin. So our structure is our function. Our function is our structure. People that don't have proper structure don't have proper function. So that leads to physical medicine, that leads to acupuncture, that leads to chiropractic, osteopathy, that leads to energy medicine. There's all sorts of interesting things. Hold on a second. You're a biochemist who would look into energy medicine, chiropractic, homeopathy. Just confirming that you said that. Absolutely. They're all part of the materialistic view of how you translate intention into function. Damn straight. All right. Thanks for saying that. People need to hear that. I, I, every now and then I get these hardcore uber rationalist people who say it can't work because it doesn't work the way I want it to work. Like, guys, sometimes things work and we can see that they work and we don't know why. And that should raise question marks, not fear. <laughs> but anyway, I appreciate you stepping up and saying that because you've got the credentials to say there's probably something there. And that's been my experience as well. 
Well, yeah, I, I think we have to and I thank you, Dave, for saying that, because I think we need to go back and ask, where does mass come from? Mass comes from energy, right? We know this Einsteinian mass energy equivalency equals MC squared. If you think of uh, quantized materialized matter, matter is just a form of coalesced energy. What are molecules? Molecules are energy that's been coalesced into high information content. Think of what I just said here. So a molecule glucose, which has six carbon atoms and a bunch of hydrogens and oxygens stuck onto it in a specific topological configuration, a specific stereochemical structure. That is really, if you think about it, uh, materialized energy that has a very high information content. It's going to impart potential information to a complex cellular system to create the potential of energy. And how it does that is through this metabolic process that we call secondary metabolism. But if you slightly alter the structure of that molecule, you can have the same carbon atoms, same hydrogen, same oxygens, but if they're in a different molecular configuration, information changes in that molecule, and now it imparts a whole different energy uh, portfolio on the body. So I think that this construct of structure function, which I learned, by the way, from Dr. Pollan, that was his whole thesis going back to the, uh, the 1930s when he started his work, was structure determines function, function determines structure. It's a holograph. That is life. Matter and energy interconvert. So when we talk about, well, that conversation that, that uh, Jeff and Dave had was just a bunch of words traveling back and forth. It just moved air and it produced the sound waves. It really, uh, and maybe it was piezoelectrically converted into electricity so it got into a digital form. No, it did more than that. It, it actually quantized information in a way that's structured that can be accessible. It's taking from random noise of the universe. That is a powerful concept that ultimately can be materialized, right? Because what we are talking about, someone can make into a material form. So it's a, it's a very, very interesting uh, duality of, I mean, it's, it's not really a duality. It's a, a body-mind, mind-body, energy matrix. Yeah, there, there's some things we haven't figured out all the way yet, and certainly information field theory is, is one of them, and understanding how do we account for the transfer of information that isn't just done via a molecule or an electron. Speaking of molecules and electrons, the last thing out of seven on your list is energy, which is an area where I've spent a lot of time. I actually have a new supplement coming out that's, fun, that's targeting mitochondria. Uh, it's called Unfair Advantage. And uh, I've been, in my own life, radically rejuvenated by focusing on mitochondrial function, especially when I was just feeling really tired and, and low and I was getting brain dysfunction because your brain is full of mitochondria. If you're listening and you're new to the show, mitochondria are the kind of power plants of the cell that make ATP, which is the fuel of your body. So as the last and final one of your seven core physiological processes, what is the deal with energy? Well, thanks. And, and that uh, is a great place for us to kind of end this discussion because um, it is the beginning of the end and it's the end of the beginning. It is all, right? It, with no energy, you have no ability to maintain structure against the randomization of the universe. You have no ability to reproduce, to contract muscles, to do anything. So where does that process all derive from? It derives from taking high energy molecules from nature that are really derived from the sun, where the sun's energy is captured by chlorophyll into manufacturing of the components of plants, which are called carbohydrate, fat, and proteins. And then taking that high potential energy and converting it through this complex process of metabolism into directed high information content energy that uh, allows our body to be powered. And it does so through 
as you mentioned, this extraordinarily interesting organelle that appears in, in cells that I call a, a, a quantum mechanical transducer called the mi mitochondria. Because if you really think of what the mitochondria does, we can go into all the biochemistry. I won't, I won't beg on people's indulgence to do that. But what it does is it strips electrons off food and it allows those electrons to be directed like you do when electrons are generated from a hydroelectric dam when water goes through the turbines. When water goes through the turbines, uh, in our state of Washington, we have the Columbia River. So I derive right now light out of my light bulb here that's coming from electrons generated in the Columbia River by water going through a turbine. Now, how did that happen? How did some 170 miles removed from that turbine, did those electrons impart that energy that lights up uh, this light bulb? Well, it did so through the process of transmission of energy like the electron transport chain does in the mitochondria. It's a miniature example of this hydroelectric power or nuclear generating power system. And it does so by basically taking high energy nutrients, macronutrients, protein, carbohydrate, and fat, and processing them through this extraordinary little energy powerhouse called the mitochondria to then produce these high energy intermediates that are directed, and you named the most principally important ATP, but there's also NADPH and FAD and FADH2. These uh, particular high energy intermediates then um, are delivered to regions of the cells that are necessary to cause muscles to contract or neurons to fire or digestive juices to be released or cells to replicate or and on and on and on. So how do we control that? Well, I think the most interesting newer developments in this field of bioenergetics, of um, mitochondrial bioenergetics, is a recognition that diet and lifestyle play extraordinarily important roles in functionally maintaining the integrity of the ability of these little powerhouses to do their work. In the past, we just thought this was a genetic uh, kind of legacy. We either got good mitochondria or we didn't. By the way, our mitochondria come exclusively from our mothers. So we are more our biologically, genetically our mothers than our fathers. It's not 50-50. We have a small amount of mitochondrial DNA that came strictly from the egg from our mothers because the uh, mitochondria and the sperm fell off with the tail. And, um, and, and therefore, this, this biological energy that we got from our mothers in the form of our mitochondria is the energy powerhouse that needs to be maintained and, uh, and regulated. And it's, uh, its membranes, its bilayer membranes of the mitochondria are very rich in these omega-3 fatty acids like DHA and, and EPA, particularly DHA. So we have to have proper nutrition of fatty acids. We have to have proper regulation of various uh, intermediaries like coenzyme Q10, which is a very important uh, uh, substance that helps to protect the um, mitochondrial energy transport system against internal injury. We need uh, magnesium in, in very significant levels for, and I could go on and on. There are many, many, it's a treasure trove. All the, the vitamins are present there. The minerals, iron, zinc, copper are found in mitochondria. So it is a, um, it is really a lesson plan unto itself as to how to maintain cellular structure and function by maintenance of mitochondrial function. And I, I'm very proud to say that we, I, I believe, were the first group to actually start doing uh, discussions within the medical community on, on, on functional mitochondrial um, uh, physiology. Uh, I started my lectures in the early 80s on uh, oxidants, antioxidants, and mitochondrial function. And uh, as I look back now, it was kind of, I didn't realize at the time, but it was pretty prescient. We were, we were ahead of the power curve. And now right. people, people like you have, have really taken this uh, uh, to, the, to the next level and really understanding how to maxi maximize mitochondrial function. 
Well, all seven of those levels that you described, each has the, it, each is eminently hackable. When I say hackable, that doesn't mean you have to go take a drug. You even have to go to the doctor, although you might for some of these because you want lab tests. What you can do is you can look at what you do to the environment around you or the environment in your body and what changes there are likely to create the changes you want. Try those changes, see if you got the results you expected. And if you did and you like them, maybe you should do that more. <laughs> that would be the essence of biohacking. Well, and that is beautifully stated exactly what I've tried to do in the disease delusion. Yeah. I have uh, eight questionnaires in there that are basically designed, they're questionnaires we've used in our research clinics over the last 25 years that are designed to help the person understand whether they fit or don't fit in each of these seven core categories. In, a, in other words, am I a candidate for an imbalance in this category where I should focus my attention? That's the, that's the structure that I've tried to put into the book to make it a little bit more user-friendly. Uh, the book, again, is called The Disease Delusion, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Now, we're coming up on the end of the show, Jeff, and there's one question that I ask every guest. And the question is, given your entire life, not just your professional life, but everything that you've learned, what are the three biggest pieces of advice you'd have for someone who wanted to perform better, at, perform better at life, not just whatever, in sport or something like that. But if you want to kick ass at whatever it is you're here to do, what are the three big learnings that you've got to offer? Well, I think uh, number one that supersedes the other two by and probably an order of magnitude is exemplified by you. And that is a locus of control. Take charge. If, if, if you uh, have any resonant um, holdover that you're a victim, yeah. you're, dead, you're dead in the water before you even get going. Any person that thinks they're a victim is already working with a, tuck, uh, a, a tank half empty. You have to think of yourself as a winner you have to think of yourself as being in charge and you have to have a high locus of control. You have to be uh, involved with self-efficacy. <laughs> you're the most important person in your universe and you're taking charge of that person. So that's number one. Uh, in the absence of that, my other two are not very important. <laughs> so if you've got that one, then the next two are seek out the appropriate guides, mentors, and knowledge uh, bearers. Um, they, no one knows everything. Uh, no one person provides complete omniscience. But um, keep your eyes and ears open, listen, talk, and be a seeker. And uh, I think in so doing, uh, and don't lock in too quickly to feel like you have the answers. Uh, remain some degree of uh, neuronal plasticity so, so you're always open to, to a new idea that might actually be a refinement of, of an old idea. And uh, I think that that, particularly in this time of great, great cultural and intellectual transformation that we're going through, it's a very good second principle. And then the third is do it, right? That sounds like I've just stolen something from a very famous uh, line from a <laughs> successful Fortune 500 company. But um, all of this, if it's not applied to action, uh, doesn't doesn't do any anybody any good and it's very easy to be too busy to take care of yourself it's very you know they say um, um, activity is is like a gas filling its own volume uh, that there'll always be an activity that'll fill your time you know oh I'm too busy for this I'm too busy for that I had an interesting and I'll just say a quick anecdote uh, and this goes back now over 30 years ago uh, I, I was giving one of my first lectures to physicians and I was talking about exercise. And I said, so let's look at how long it takes to get some effective aerobic exercise in. So I was saying 20 minutes of sustaining your pulse every day within your aerobic training zone based on your age and fitness level is a good target. 
And then someone said, oh, 20 minutes. Well, geez, but I have to get dressed and then I have to take a shower and then I have to get redressed. And, and uh, my word, it may take upward of an hour total. I said, okay, so let's, let's say it does take an hour. I don't think it would take an hour, but let's say it does take an hour. That's 1 24th of your day. That is 5% of your day. Okay, 1 24th, 5%. Is that, are you worth 5% of your day? Because if you are, this is a life insurance policy you're investing in. Now, the thing that you think you're investing in, what you call a life insurance policy, is a death insurance policy. It's going to pay your beneficiaries for your death. If you want a life insurance policy, you want to have at least 5% of your day as a life insurance for your longevity. That's a dedication you have to make every day. Now, when I said that, that was over 30 years ago, I ran into this one of those docs at that meeting recently. And he said to me, 30 some years later, the most profound thing in any medical meeting he ever went to in his 30 year history was that one statement. <laughs> that if he doesn't have 5% of his day for himself, then what value is he to himself? So I, I think that just do it is a very, very important third principle that we all have to implement. Well, sage advice. Dr. Jeffrey Bland, thank you very much for being on the show and thanks for the 35 years you've put into hacking the human body. Um, it's, it's moved mountains. Well, Dave, thank you. I think what you're doing to spread this news and to bring it into a news that can be used is, is absolutely where it counts. So thanks a million. Would you do me the favor of listing where people can buy your book and any URLs you'd like to send them to? All these will be in the show notes, but a lot of people are driving right now, so they'd love to know where they can learn more about your work. Yeah, the, the book is available on Amazon or all major booksellers. It it's, um, was released in April of, um, of 2014, so it's, it's readily available. Um, and I can be found at uh, jeffreybland.com, um, uh, or you can find me. Uh, uh, all you have to do is Google Jeffrey Bland, and it's, it, you'll, you'll, you'll hear all the things you never wanted to know about me somehow. So that's, that's where I can be found. Thanks. Have a great afternoon. Not that many people know it, but the first company I started was a t-shirt company when I was about 20. It turns out that company was the first company to sell anything over the internet, the very first working example of e-commerce. And it was featured in lots and lots of magazines in the early to mid-90s because it was such an innovation. Well, I'm back in the t-shirt business. Head on over to UpgradedSelf.com and see how cool these t-shirts are. They fit amazingly well, they're super soft, and they're really affordable, especially for a t-shirt that's this high quality. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. 
This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.